story of Lazarus is found in John chapter 11. There's 44 verses that we'll cover swiftly today, but I'll read the first four and then I'll cover those as the story unfolds. Familiar to many of us, but maybe if you're not here, you'll kind of catch where this thing is going. This is what it says. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I want to read that verse 4 one more time because that's the verse in this passage. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I invite you to pray. Ask God to open your hearts, your minds, that he would speak to you, and I will pray for us collectively as a body. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do praise you for your love as we just recited, Father, that sometimes we come to your word and it's painful because it draws real emotion. Things we're going through, things we're struggling with, things that are on our heart. And Father, sometimes that is painful. Life is painful. We'll look at this today. But Father, I pray that you would, by your grace and by your love, show yourself to us. Remind us of who you are and that we can trust in you because you're forever faithful. Father, may you be glorified through ours our lives collectively as a people of God. And Father, may you be glorified through us individually as we obey and trust in faith. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. So Hudson Taylor, if you know that name, was a British missionary to China. For 51 years he served, and he encountered trials of all kinds. And he is quoted as saying this, trials afford God a platform for his working in our lives. He said that trials afford God a platform so that he can work. It's what we just read there in verse 4. And I acknowledge that your life probably is full of trials, things that are struggles to work through, as is mine. And so if I was just going to ask you a question this morning that I wanted you to hold on to the entire time we spend together, it would be this. What is your greatest heartache right now in your life? I'll just give you a second to think about that. What is the greatest heartache in my life? It could be something personal, a physical ailment. It could be a son or a daughter or a family member, whether it be a son or daughter that's wandered away from the faith or has no faith in Christ at all. Maybe it's a family member that's just on your heart. Maybe it's a challenge with work or a friend or a relationship. Whatever that is, it just brings emotion to you. What is your greatest heartache? I feel like when we go through life and we go to God's word and we go to God and ask all these questions, these questions come up when we experience trials. Do I really believe God is in control of everything that happens in my life? That's a question we're often faced with. Why is life so difficult? Why so much pain? Why does God allow difficult and painful things into my life? How is one supposed to make it through the heartaches of life? What am I supposed to do with all my pain and hurt and confusion. That is what you see in chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus, are experiencing, and with other 
people that are experiencing sorrow, they're experiencing grief over a loss. And this story, the death of Lazarus in chapter 11, is kind of this hinged chapter in John, really important chapter in the Bible, because all that precedes it is what Jesus has spoken about up until John eleven twenty five, 25, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And we'll look at that text today. And all that comes after it is what he's been kind of setting up for, this resurrection, this, this going to the cross, rather, being buried and then rising again. So 11 is kind of this hinged chapter. All that precedes that Jesus has been talking about who he is, persecuted by the Jews, and all that comes after, in the book of John, at least in, in series, is all that's coming as he teaches his disciples, goes to the cross, was buried, and then rises victoriously over death. And he says this one just dynamic claim in verse 4, that it is for the glory of God, all your heartaches, all your sufferings, all your pain, all that you're experiencing is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Essentially saying, when I suffer, when you and I experience trials of any kind, God has brought glory and Jesus is exalted. James 1, 2 and 3 says it this way, This is hard for us. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That is not a common reaction. When you have heartache and trial in front of you, it's not a common reaction to say, this is a good thing. But you'll see in John 11, Jesus says it's a good thing. We read from Hebrews 12, it's a good thing. Now, one thing that we have to know, and I have to say this before we jump into the details here, in John 11, and the details of all of our circumstance and heartache, is that Jesus is in complete control of all things. He's in complete control of your life in every detail, and you'll see in chapter 11, he is in complete control of all that happens in sequence in John 11. God is sovereign over all things, and this is so hard for so many. Why would God allow this? All those questions I asked, but God is in charge, in control of everything. In fact, nothing's different than it could have been for you. That's hard to think about. We think we make a lot of decisions and choices, which we do. There's human responsibility, but God knows it all. Some higher way, that's why we started with Isaiah 55, some higher thoughts, he's beyond all of that. So here's what I want to do. I want to do this swiftly. I want to move through the story of John 11, and the text itself is broken up into four sections, and I want to move through each one, again, kind of briefly and swiftly. The first one is the trial, the circumstance, the heartache in verses 1 through 16. The second, you'll see an encounter with Martha in verses 17 through 27. And then he has an encounter with Mary, who's Martha's sister, Lazarus's sister. And then finally, you see the outcome. Lazarus is raised from the dead out of the tomb in verses 38 through 44. But in each of those sections, I kind of want to do a little, almost a Bible study format. You see something about your life, something that speaks to you individually, and something about God. And so I want to show us something. What does it say about life in general? What does it say about me? And what does it say about God? And the first one, in this first part, this trial or circumstance, you see that what it says about life is what we can all acknowledge. You all probably thought of a heartache, one dear to your heart. Life is hard. It's complex. It's, it's difficult. It's painful at times. Anybody that breathes and lives on this earth knows because of the fall of sin, there's depravity, there's illness, there's sickness. It's hard. We go through hard things. The second thing I have to know is about myself. I have no control. 
I have no control over outcomes. Now, I might think I do in a lot, but I know some of the healthiest people that have taken care of their body and have like taken care of their heart and their lungs, and they get cancer when they're 20 years old. There's just, there's just no control, whatever God has in your life. And the third thing is that we need to know that God is in complete control. And so you see this develop in this story. We find in verse 1 that Lazarus is from Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem. The village Mary and Martha are his siblings. It says in verse 2 that Mary is the one who worshiped Jesus by anointing his feet. This is important in the story itself because you'll see later that Mary's reaction is not like you would have thought was a Mary reaction. She was seen wiping Jesus' feet, worshiping him. She was a more emotional, passionate person in love with Jesus. And here, there's this detail about her. And Martha was the more, you know, the Mary and Martha thing when Jesus comes over. She was more, you know, a thinker. She overthought. She wanted the house perfect and all of that stuff. And so you see this, these two sisters, and they send for Jesus in verse 3 because Lazarus is ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. They go and they send somebody to Jesus. Why? Because he can do something about it, right? And so they send people to go get Jesus and bring him back with the hope that he will restore him. And Jesus responds with what we said in verse 4, with purpose. This illness won't lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God might be glorified through it. We have to assume that the disciples heard this. This is important for where we're going. He says, this illness will not lead in death. Maybe through your trials, you've heard other people, doctors, friends, other people say, it'll be okay. And so these disciples hear this, it'll be okay. They must have heard this because of what's going to unfold. But Jesus says, this is not going to end the way that you think it will. Which then comes verses 5 and 6, and this is so hard for us. Now Lazarus loved, I'm going to read this really slow. It's just as weird when you read it and hear it. Now Lazarus, or Jesus, loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he loved them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Doesn't that sound loving to you? I read that every time, and I, and I think, how true is that of our relationship with God? Jesus says he loves him so much, and you hear God loves you so much, and because God loves you, he's going to delay a little bit longer with your deepest heartache, with your greatest sorrow. He tells him, we'll just wait. Is this a contradiction? Not at all. Does this seem like a strange way to show love? Of course it does. But that's why we read from Isaiah 55 and Hebrews 12. God is just different. His thoughts are different. What if his version of love is more perfect than ours? What if we read this text and say, you know what? God would be more loving if he would have snapped out of there. Jesus would have left right away. Emergency, right? That's our version of love. What if God's love is higher than that? What if his ways are higher than that? We don't always understand. Discipline is painful. I'm sure those extra days as this was all ramping up was painful. But it can be both positive and punitive, the pain. Of course, there's pain from natural circumstance, consequence that we put our hand to sin and we have pain because of it. But also, as we read from Hebrews 12, sometimes in life, God will bring us through deep pain to grow things in us that could not happen. Mike prayed that very way. He spoke to us in that way that that's happened in his life. So you see, Jesus then goes 
after he learns this, he says, eventually, after two days, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said in verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Why are you going? There is an urgency, and, an, and a, not an urgency to get there, but there is an urgent request for Jesus not to go there. His disciples know that he was just attempted to be killed and that if he goes back, they'll kill him. So Jesus now, as we know from our study in John, the appointed time has come, and he says, let's go back to Jerusalem. But he responds in verses 9 and 10 to them questioning, why would we go back there, Jesus? It's not safe. And in verse 9 and 10, he says, Are not there twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This is a really good application for us in the trials. Jesus is saying, if you stick close to me, you can trust me. I can be with you. If you wander away from me, you will be in darkness. As the context goes in this passage here, Jesus is saying, if anyone walks in the day, the light with him, they won't stumble. Yes, it might be painful, but if anyone wants to go and do their own thing in their trials, in their circumstances, you're going to be lost in darkness. In verse 11 through 14, we find what the situation is. The disciples are confused. And after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep which was a common phrase for illness, that he was almost comatose or just trying to recover. But I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Why would they say that? Because he told them it wouldn't end in death. So Jesus follows with, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he had meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, as if God tells us plainly sometimes, Jesus just speaks it just as it is. Lazarus has died. Remember, the disciples have heard that Jesus said, because he spoke it, the word of God, and the one that we read doesn't return empty. It's not going to end in death. They hear the same God say, Lazarus has died. Sometimes in our trial, sometimes in our heartache, God appears contradictory. He appears as if he loves, he promises, we can lean on all of those things, and then our heart hurts so much and we doubt. This isn't the same God it can't be. And here the disciples are faced with a very similar emotion. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus just said he wasn't going to die. And he just said, Lazarus is dead. He has died. And not only that, but what does he follow it up with? And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But now let us go to him. Whoa, what? Can you imagine being there? The disciples they feel lied to, and then he says, but you know what? It's a good thing he's died. That's confusing. And then, let's go to him. Why? Like this roller coaster of emotion, why would we do this? This must have been a jolt to him, as it would be to us. I remember, I'll probably get emotional about this, 20 weeks in utero, Josiah, we found out that he had club feet. And some of you know this story well. And so he had club feet, and they saw his feet were severely turned in, and that's what they looked like when he was born. And I remember that Carrie and I went, and we met our surgeon for the first time, even while Carrie was still pregnant. And they did a bunch of other tests, and they found out, like, that's the only thing that Josiah is going to struggle with. And so I remember the night that he was born, and my wife and I had prayed, 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 
that God would heal those feet when he was born, that we would see straight feet. That was our jolt that night. I remember looking at Carrie's face. And, and it was just a jolt. We had faith that God would answer our prayers and those feet would be straight. And I remember when he came out of the womb and we saw him for the first time, we looked at his feet and it was just kind of like this contradiction of like who God said he was and we asked and like then this happened. And all these questions. So I speak from like being close to this reality of these disciples. Like, why did you say do this? Like pray in faith and then, and then this happens. That's confusing to me. And I know that all of our heartaches are like that. And we come and it's this jolt to these disciples and it's real. And then Jesus says it this way. I'm glad. I'm glad that this happened this way. I'm glad that it happened this way. Because I have purpose in it. That's what he tells the disciples. I'm glad that this happened. When I looked at Josiah's feet, I didn't say, I'm glad that that happened. When I experienced different pain in my life, I'm not saying, I'm I'm glad that that happened. And Jesus said, I'm glad. Because I want to show you something. As a side note in verse 16, and we'll kind of move past it, but I want you to see it. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas gets a bad rap. Doubting Thomas, you know him, right? He was the one that didn't believe. But look what he does in verse 16. What is he doing there? He says, if Jesus is going, I guess I'll go. We're going to go die with him. Thomas is being faithful here. They know what they're going into. Jesus is probably going to be killed. We know that that's eventually what happens. And Thomas, as a disciple, says, you know what? The cost of following Jesus is great, but I'll go. So if you ever want to give Thomas a bad rap for his doubting, go to verse 16 in chapter 11. Here's a man of faith who's saying, you know what? I'm going to pay for this in death, but I'll go with him. Life is hard. You have no control, but God is in complete control. Part two, this encounter with Martha. What do we learn about life? Life is temporary. That's what you need to know. We're just a vapor, the Bible says. Me, I must have right perspective in that life. And three, God is hope and life. Jesus is hope and life. In verse 17, Jesus arrives. Now Jesus came. He found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Four days. He had waited. They had, he had, by the time that news got to him and that illness had came, Jesus stayed two more days. Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. I'll get back to this in a minute, but verse 18 and 19 shows us that Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. I said on Palm Sunday, it was about from here to Rock Lake in proximity, not far at all, so they could come. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console. They're coming and to grieve and to console that this thing had happened. Four days he's in the tomb. Now look at the response of Martha and Mary. This is what I want you to see in verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. It's really interesting because if you know the story of Martha and Mary, Mary, Martha would have probably stayed with all the guests because I got to tend to all of them, even though I'm the one they're grieving with, and I got to keep everything together. And Mary waits. So Martha goes, and she runs towards Jesus out of the village. And Martha, in verses 21 through 22, has this encounter. Martha said to Jesus, look at this. Lord, if you had been there, here, my brother would not have died. How many times have we said that about our trials? Lord, if you'd have just done something, this wouldn't have happened. But even now, 
There's faith in Martha's words. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She knows she ran to Jesus because she knew he had power. She sent for Jesus because she knew he had power. We go to God because we know he has power. And so Martha says, if you'd have been here, she does this rebuke or like, I don't even know what's rebuke or belief thing, but she says, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. But I know that if you ask God, you can do something about this. And what is Jesus' response? In verse 23, the hope statement, your brother will rise again. Four days. Four days. Jesus is in complete control, though, of this situation. The sovereignty of God is like that. It says that nothing can be different about the moment we are in. Yes, we often want to blame God, but it simply could not be different than it is now. Four days. Belief in rabbinic culture was that after three days, the soul left the body. That was a circle, a common belief for them, that after three days dead, that the soul left the body. A lot of theories around that. It's kind of like Princess Bride, you know, when Wesley dies. You know the movie, right? you got to throw in those references every once in a while. And, and Billy Crystal's character, he's dead, but only mostly dead right? But four days, this is like the soul to them has left the body. There is no hope, which is interesting because, listen to this, friends, Jesus waits until after the enemy of death appears to have won when he decides to act. Isn't that more glorious? He waits until all the hope has been just about sapped out of you before he waits, in this story at least, to act. Which begs the question, are the delays of God actually delays? You can't question God's timing. Are the delays of God actually delays? We say that a lot. We'll have to wait on God. The scriptures talk about that. But are the delays of God actually delays? This story teaches us at least two things about God's delays. First, waiting is inevitable. Waiting on God is inevitable. He's omniscient. Big picture, he sees everything, we're going to have to wait. But here's the second thing. I want us to know this. There is no guarantee that we could know or would even choose what is best, the highest good in any given situation and what the most loving thing is to do. You and I would choose to do a lot of things different. We would choose to make our past different than it was up until this moment. We would choose to like not have all the things wrong with our earthly bodies that we have wrong with them. We would choose not to have our families wander away from Christ. We would choose everything different. But there is no way you could know as a finite being what the most best thing, the highest good is, the most loving thing. That is only God. And so in this moment, as it is in our own trials, faith is challenged. And Martha offers a different perspective. She's learning this, that life is temporary. And Jesus reminds her that Lazarus will rise again. And so Martha knows, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection the last day. She's saying, I have hope that in the last day. She's kind of missing it here. And Jesus points her to something different. Jesus makes this huge statement in John eleven twenty five. 25. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me... This is present, not will believe in me, believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in him, in me, shall never die. Do you believe this? This hope in life is this big perspective shift. Resurrection, Jesus says, life which triumphs over death is not confined to the distant future, but is present in the here and now in him who is the embodiment of promised life and salvation. Remember, Martha has not seen Jesus Jesus be raised from the dead yet. 
That hasn't happened in this story. Martha has not, at this point, seen Jesus go to the cross and be raised. So she has some kind of faith confidence that Jesus will do something later. But we often say, yeah, it'll be okay then. My wife and I have this saying. Sometimes we say, yeah, it'll be okay someday. But there's more than that. There's present day Jesus' hope and life that he comes into this story and says, you can trust in me now. You don't have to wait. Jesus is also life. He changed water into wine. Materially, he is over life. Spiritually, he offers life anew in the kingdom to be reborn. Spiritually, we sang about that, to be adopted and chosen in the family of God, to be reconciled. What could be better and greater than that? We have hope when we come together on Sunday because we know in Christ, this isn't all there is. What could be better than that, knowing Jesus? We looked at it last week in chapter 10. He offered abundant life, life to the full, joy-filled life. No human experience could ever touch that. We need a perspective change. And so Jesus looks at Martha and he says, do you believe it? Martha's response should be, of, as all of ours should be in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the one who came to die. You are the Son of God in all power who is coming into the world. I added words there, but for emphasis. That's what she was saying. Yes, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the one who came to save. And you're also the Son of God. You're from God's hand. You are very God. You are powerful, truly God. That is who we can bring our trials to. Life is temporary. You have to have perspective Jesus' hope in life, part three. And I just looked at the clock. My apologies. I'm keeping going here. He sees this encounter with Mary. It has been said that there is no earthly heartache in heaven, that heaven can't cure. There is no earthly heartache that heaven can't hear, cure. What do we learn in number three? That life is real. You and I have pain. We have emotion. Sometimes I apologize for that, but then I remember life is emotional. God created us this way. There's a realness and rawness to what you'll see in Mary. What I learn about me is I have weakness and pain. I have things in my heart that hurt. You have things in your heart that hurt when it's affected by life circumstance. And what do we learn about God in this chunk of scripture? Is that Jesus cares deeply. Mary's encounter is different. She is known in the Gospels for her passionate worship of Jesus. She's more emotional over rational, as many of us are. She doesn't overthink. She's seated in the house. But Martha goes in verse 28 and 29 and retrieves her. The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly to him. It was that prompting, Martha said, and Mary rushes off to Jesus. Verse 30 says, Jesus still hasn't entered the village. This is for picturing the scene now in this moment. And in verse 31... It says that others follow Mary out of the house thinking that she was going to the tomb. Like, we got to go after her. She's like irate, and she just busts out of the house, and they follow after her. Jesus is in complete control. There's more people that will be learning through this whole situation. Verse 32, it says that Mary approaches Jesus. Look at this. Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet. There's worship here still. She knows he has power. They sent for him. And she says the same thing. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would have not died. The very same thing Martha said in a different way. 
What's similar? They both acknowledge Jesus as Lord. They believe he's in control. They believe he has power. They, they just ask a different question. The question is not, could you have changed the circumstance? The question is like more like ours. Why didn't you? That's why we ask God all the time. Why didn't you change this, God? A question that cannot often be answered except for what Jesus said in verse 4. That God might be glorified through it. What is to follow, though, is more significant. And this is always, every time I read this story, it's part confusing and part just like healing of my soul that I read. This moment you see Jesus in his deep care and love, probably the most true moment in the scriptures, in this moment that we see him present in our sufferings. Jesus is not remote from our sufferings. He is not remote from your heartache that you thought about earlier. In verse 33, deeply moved, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was surrounded by weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. As a pastor, I am often in situations where I am around very sorrowful situations. Having done funerals, having done funerals for people that have died either suddenly or not suddenly, but it's very sorrowful. And so I imagine Jesus in this moment, he's surrounded by all this weeping, and he's just sad. And I think he's sad, troubled in his spirit, because he's sad about the human condition. Think of where he's going. He's going to the cross here. And he's sad because of the state of sin. He's sad because of humanity is in this spot because of sin, because everything's broken. And often when I go into those situations, I too am in the midst of family members, and I just hate it. Like, this is, the, this is life on earth. It's sad. Sickness and death and disease and all of this. And it bothers him and it grieves him and he's troubled in his spirit. And so in John eleven thirty five, it says this poignant, the shortest verse in the scripture, but probably the most eloquent, Jesus wept. You might read that and you might say, why? He knows what he's going to do. I've read the end of the story. But it's in this moment he identifies with human suffering. As a side note, if you're struggling with verse memorization, start there. John eleven, thirty-five, And not just because it's two words, but because it's one of the most powerful words in Scripture. Jesus is sad, sympathizing, in weakness, deeply troubled not remote from the sufferings, not remote from your pain, not when you wonder, God, why, why is this my life? Why is this happening in my kid's life? Why is this happening in my mom and dad's life? Why is this happening in my life? Why don't I have a job? I just had a good job. Why? why? He's not gone from that. He wants to teach you something in it. He's present. Life is real. You have weakness and you have pain, but there is a God who cares deeply in it. The last section here in verses 38 through 44 is the miracle, the outcome in this story. And we learn in number four here that life is not about us. That's hard for us to get. There are things that I can and should do, and this is the thing about me. There are things, even though life is not about me, there are things that I can do through the trial. And what do we learn about God? Jesus will receive glory through what God appoints in your life. 
In verse 38, Jesus deeply moved and is already standing in front of the tomb. It says there, deeply moved again, he came to the tomb. They had all kind of followed him out. And in verse 38, he is in front of the tomb. It says it was a cave, a stone lay against it. If that is not a foreshadowing of what's to come in Jesus' own death and burial. And in verse 39, it tells that the stone, Jesus says this, take away the stone. Martha, who had known that Jesus would be raised in the last day, who kind of rebuked Jesus, but also believed in him at the same time, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. So she's hesitant. I don't know what you're thinking about right now, but don't take that stone away. She still, see the human condition of faith and the no faith and like, God, like, yeah, this is not a good idea. He's been dead for four days, and Jesus then rebukes her. Listen to what he says. Did I not tell you? I almost want to say this to all of us. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Did I not just say that if you trusted me, you would see the glory of God? Yes, the enemy of death has appeared to just completely have won here, but did I not just say that? How many times do we need that joke to our soul when God says, did I not promise you? Did I not tell you I loved you? Did I not just say that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Friends, there is nothing more powerful than that statement that Jesus wants our faith and obedience, even through trials. He knows if we trust him, he'll be brought glory. And it's a command there. And that's why there are things I could do. Look what he does. He says here, think about this. Jesus who could speak a word and raise Lazarus from the dead. Look at the things he does. He makes three commands, four if you count faith or believing in general. In verse 39, 43, and 44, he says, take away the stone. He could have spoken a word and the stone could have moved, but he said, take it away. And then he said in verse 43, Lazarus, come out. There's a command in obedience. And then at the end of verse 44, he says, unbind him and let him go. Three times does Jesus just command obedience he could have just spoken a word. Lazarus could have come out. Jesus, you know, could have like done his thing and the, the, the cloth could have come off. But he gives command to people. Why? Because there's things you can do in your trials. How does someone saddened by earthly trials, trials make it through? What do I do with my anxiety, loss, hurt, and confusion? I'll tell you what to do. You pray. You trust. You read the Bible. You be honest and real about your emotion. You communicate that to others. You remember. God tells us in the scriptures to remember his faithfulness. You gaze ahead. We just read that. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You look outside yourself. You keep fellowship with others. You serve others. None of these are just deal with it, stuff it, just walk through life, be angry at God. No, there's things you can do. And what I find most common about people that are walking in trials is they internalize and they just cluster into themselves. Super dangerous. Jesus says, you can still trust me. You can still serve others. You can still go outside yourself. You can still read the Bible. It's still true. You can do all those things. I just want your obedience. And then he prays. And look at this prayer. He wants us to persist in obedience. And then he prays this. He turns his eyes in the middle of this moment, as Jesus often does, kind of like away from himself towards God. All these people are like, what in the world's happening? And he fixes his eyes on God, his father. And he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. Jesus didn't doubt that ever. Look what he says. I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus never 
Like Jesus didn't receive a new gift or an epiphany here. He says it for the benefit of others. He never doubted God once as we do. He never like, God, I like four days kind of like put power through me. This is going to be awkward if it doesn't work. None of that. He stands there and he says, I didn't do this for me. I did it for you so that you would believe. Remember, Jesus is in perfect fellowship with the Father. God hears and he says, you ought to be grateful as Jesus is grateful. He does what he wills, when he wills it, and how he wills it. Because life is not about us. There are things that I can do in obedience and Jesus will receive glory. Friends, I can stand here today as a pastor and I, I've read the Bible, I study the Bible, I prepare as I preach, and I can stand here and I'll just tell you, I don't have all the answers to the whys. I don't. People come and ask me that question more than any other. Why is this happening to me? I don't have all the answers for all of that because I'm not omniscient. But trust me, I struggle through them just like you do. And I know that life is hard and I know that it's real and it's raw, but I know that's not all there is. I know it's not about me. I know it's not about you. I have no control, but I do have perspective. I have real pain, but I also know that Jesus cares deeply about that pain. He's present and it doesn't feel like it all the time, but he is. And friends, this is a tough one, and it's counterintuitive, certainly countercultural, and it's counter everything about your feelings of your heartache right now. But life is just not about you and your feelings. It's not. And if you came to church today thinking you'd just get built up in that, I'm going to tell you, it's not about you and your feelings. It's about Jesus and being glorified through you. Everything you go through has purpose. And God simply asks us to obey and worship and surrender to that purpose. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What is the biggest heartache you are facing right now? What is the biggest heartache you're experiencing in your soul right now? Here's what I tell you. Have faith. Trust in Jesus that he is in control. Be obedient. It's temporary. He cares and loves you and Bring him glory through it. Amen.